Coming up next, the booketing reads Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. This is Nathan Alberson joining you again for another episode, episode 41, I believe this is. I'm checking my phone to see if that's correct. No, because there's going to be episodes that come out before this one comes out. But I am just pleased as punch to welcome you to another episode of The Booketing. I live a charmed life. I get to welcome people to episodes of The Booketing. And specifically today, in addition to you, the the, the listener, my favorite participant in this experiment, I'm, I get to welcome two other favored folks. And we're going to start today, maybe we'll mix it up. We'll start with the pastor, who some might say is the master of reading, Jake Menzel. How you doing today, Jake? I'm doing well. How are you, Nathan? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Jake is uh, wearing his bright, loud uh, shoes. He's uh, wearing shorts. He's got his Coke. Looks very comfortable. The stench of baseball is in the air. By the stench of baseball, I mean the stench of Jake. He just came (laughs) from baseball with his son, because that's the kind of wonderful dad that Jake is. Commander Daddy himself, as we know. Jake, how was baseball today? Well... Since you asked, we lost. You lost. Yeah. Peter got the game ball, though. Peter got the game ball. Brendan, what's the game ball? I don't know what the game ball is. The game ball is what you get for exceptional play. One kid on each game gets a game ball. Did he deserve the game ball? There you have it. Were you proud of him? Did you say, son, I'm proud of you? I think he, no, I don't think he deserved the game ball. (laughs) But he still got it. But he got it. Wasn't my call to give, so I'd have given it to somebody else. Did you wrench it from his hands and say, you don't deserve this? One day, son, maybe. Nope. One day, son. <laughs> or were you like, great job. You're the best. I'm so proud of you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I talked to him about what he did well, and I talked to him about what he could have done better, and I encouraged him where he needed to be encouraged, and I... Discouraged him where he needed to be discouraged. It I disciplined like... him where he needed to be disciplined. There you go. That's Commander Daddy himself speaking, the, the master of fatherhood, is... <laughs> As many have called you over the years. Jake's yes. wearing, wearing those shoes. It's a sh- uh, surprise that we can hear anybody over the loudness of Jake's glow-in-the-dark yellow shoes. I assume they glow in the dark. Do those shoes glow in the dark? Uh, we could try. I don't know. Let's I bet try. they do. You bet they do? Let's try. I bet they don't. All right. Jake's turning out the lights. Oh, they don't. That's too bad. This yeah. is kind of cool that we should just stay like this. Yeah. <laughs> we are in the heart of darkness. <laughs> we are in the heart of darkness. Let's not. Hold on. I need a picture of this, though, because you are... There's a jungle behind you. And it's illuminated. You are Kurtz, as we all know. By me? It's illuminated by your computer screen. I hope you keep this in the podcast. Whoa. People listen There's for that one stuff. one thing that I know. <laughs> it's a, that's exactly the kind of thing that Nathan keeps in. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> all the silence. I might even elongate the silence just so you can really picture Jake taking those pictures. Uh, Jake's wearing his shorts. He's got his loud shoes. It's a shock we can hear anything over the shoes. I've already said that. He's got his cap. He's about to put it on. He's putting it on frontwards. He was wearing it backwards. As we know, the sign of a quality human being is a backwards <laughs> baseball cap, which is what Jake was wearing. I'm sorry. That was rather rather elitist of me. That was the that was my William Beth Buckley coming out. Oh, there he is. He's got it on backwards. He's he's looking like a man who enjoys life, like a man possibly who is a, a 17 year old caddy for a golf course. <laughs> a little bit. Um, but Jake's not the only person here. He's just uh, full just of the dude, bro, man. Yeah, Jake. If, if there's one thing, bro. what's that? 
No, no, no. no, he's not a bra. <laughs> Jake, should we call you Commander Dude, Dude Bro from now on? Probably. That's like a portmanteau of all the different qualities. It brings your commandingness. <laughs> Commander anyway. Dude Bro, yes. <laughs> Commander Dude Bro. And a man who, I'm going to go, he's a dude. He's a bro, but I wouldn't consider him to be a dude bro. He is the other man in this room, though. He's got the jeans. He's got the polo. The the kind of, uh, what would you call that? Mauve? Grayish? Used to be polo. black. <laughs> I was going to call it brown. But... <laughs> Did it really used to be black? Oh, yes. Sun bleached. Sun bleached, but we haven't introduced you yet. Your name is, of course, Brandon Chastine. Hey. The PhD ABD. How you doing, Brandon? Doing very well, Nathan. I'm so glad to hear it. Brandon, um... I spent so much time with Jake, I feel like I should spend a little time with you. What did you think about um, Arrival, the movie? Arrival, the movie, Arrival. What did you think about that thing? <laughs> I liked it. Wrong. Incorrect. False. I, I did not like it. Correct. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> this is actually I, how I get all the opinions on the book. And if you've ever wondered how we agree so much, I generally turn off the mic. I slightly liked it. <laughs> slightly Still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I berate the uh, two guys until they are thoroughly domineered and crying in the corner. And then we record. That's how we get the amazing quality that you know and love from the book. I think that's not true at all. We generally all have similar taste, which is why we decided to do this, because we thought it the most interesting kind of podcast is the one where three guys basically have similar taste and agree about things. And there's Jake. He's sending a text on his phone. Who are you sending the text to, Jake? You. You. Okay. Oh. I'm going to look for this. Is it going to be like, you just insulted Brandon. Didn't you know that his grandma died in a mauve shirt? Still waiting for the text. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's probably a picture. Is it a picture? It's like five of them. All right, folks, if you want to see these pictures, then you can go to our Twitter. There'll be one of these pictures. If you want to see all five, then you can become a Patreon listener at patreon.com forward slash the booking. Sing it for us, Nathan. P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash the booking. I'll let you off the hook there, Brandon. Thank you. You're I welcome. forgot the dot com. Wait, well, oh, crap. <laughs> see, there's a reason I have you do it. <laughs> Sing it for us, Brandon. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> You forgot how to sing. <laughs> I forgot how to sing. You forgot how to sing? This book caused me to forget yeah. the sound of my own voice. Anyway, we're going to read some uh, Heart of Darkness. So uh, you guys ready to read some, or read some Heart of Darkness? I always do that. You guys ready to discuss some Joseph Marlowe's whatever Conrad's Heart of Darkness? I am. Jake? As I try to get situated yeah. here. <laughs> As I try to get situated here. Oh, those are some great pictures, actually. I told that's, you. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, folks, you are going to want to be a Patreon member or look it out at a Twitter. It's probably good enough. It deserves to go on Twitter. I don't know. Yeah. I'll decide later. You can be in suspense about that. If it hasn't, if the picture hasn't already gone up on Twitter. <sighs> well, hey, Brandon. Nathan. Bang, bang. Contextual Texan. Don't you need it's- to do two shout outs at least? Donor shout out time. It's donor shout out time. Brandon, you ready to do the your classic segment that we all love, the donor donor shout outs? I am so ready. All right, I'm going to give you the names and you <clears> shout <throat> them out, baby. Let's do it. All right. Donor number one, John. John. Fine use of money, John. And donor number two, Beth. Beth. Neither one of those two folks related <laughs> to me in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> hey, Brandon. Hey, Nathan. It's time for the contextual text. It's the part of the show where you give the context. It's time for the contextual Texan. Yeah, bang, bang. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> bang, bang. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> bang, bang. Yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> contextual Texan is, of course, the part of the show where Brandon gives us a little context, and he's about to do that for Heart of Darkness. Brandon, take it away. Everyone's favorite segment of the show. <sighs> Not today. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Well, why not? Forgot my notes. Oh. But hey, we're going to wing this, baby. Yeah. I've got some things to add, so. We, uh, we know the general path we want to go down, so let's go down the path. Yeah. <laughs> well, we generally start with bio. Yep. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Joseph Conrad, he was born in 1857, I believe. I'm going to, uh, here, I'll just pull up his Wikipedia page so I can help Brandon. He forgot his notes. He doesn't... Well, that's just the general date that we need. The point to keep in mind is he was born right in the middle of the 1800s, and we've kind of discussed in broad sweeps with some of our other novels the literary history that was going on at the time. Melville in America, he would have been already in the middle of his career. Dickens would have been in the middle of his career. Twain. Twain, that's right. And so there was a rich history of the novel that predates Conrad, even his birth. So um, he was born in Poland, or what would become Poland. Russia was, owned Poland at the time, yeah, I believe. Yeah, Russia owned Poland at the time. It was, I forget what it was, the Kingdom of Poland, and it was actually now what would be known as the Ukraine. It's important to know that he was born in a position where it was already imperially overseen by a, a larger power. So Russia was the owner of Poland in Poland was in continual warfare and revolutionary actions against Russia. In fact, Joseph Conrad's father was very politically active. So politically active, in fact, that he got sent into exile. <laughs> exile when, to Siberia. <laughs> that's right. When Joseph Conrad was very young, his mother died of tuberculosis. And then by the age of 11, his father had also died of tuberculosis. His father, though, he was, like I said, this politically active person, which also meant that he was a part, maybe even, maybe on the fringes, I couldn't ever quite tell, but still a part of what was becoming known as the intelligentsia class at the time. And we've talked a lot about class and the way that class affects authors as they mature into their authorhood. <laughs> but this this class in particular, and you see it a lot, Marx would have been a part of this class, with the ability for people to have time to think about politics or to think about literature. So you would have a lot of academics. You would have a lot of these. You see some of these characters in, for example, Levin's brother in Anna Karenina. A lot of the characters. A lot of the characters in Anna Karenina are a part of this growing intelligentsia class. And so this is the class that Conrad was born into. His uncle was a part of this. He was, after he was orphaned, he went to live with his uncle for a while. And so it meant that he got a fairly decent education. His father read him some of the great Polish works of, especially of poetry. And he fell deeply in love with those. He was heavily influenced by Shakespeare also heavily influenced by guys like Fenimore Cooper. And his imagination was formed along these lines for adventure, and he wanted to become, or he wanted to pursue a career at sea. I was going to say a sailor, but he wasn't quite a sailor. He wanted to pursue a career at sea, which is very similar to what you would see, for example, in Melville. And Conrad and Melville have a lot of parallels in their themes and in their styles. Well, I I guess not actually their style. I do have an opinion about who I like better. Are we going to find it out? Oh, yeah. Okay. I can spoil it right now. (laughs) Who do you like better? Conrad. (laughs) I suspect that as much. For all you people out there who like Moby Dick, Moby Dick's fine, but I don't think he holds a candle to Conrad. There, I said it. We don't have to do Moby Dick now. We can just call this the Moby Dick episode. I think Moby Dick's great. Yeah, no, it's pretty good. But Conrad, he's one of those rare guys who I'm kind of showing my hand early, but I really like Conrad. So we'll talk more about that, though, with baggage check mm-hmm. where was i uh intelligentsia the way yeah wanted so he wanted sailor. to be, he wanted to pursue a career at sea i believe he was another one of our authors who kind of had the opportunity and did have something of a good education but also kind of felt stifled and didn't exactly. do very yeah. well it's amazing how often that 
Very uh, similar to Tolstoy, actually. Yeah. He was a bad student. He he could have been a better student. He was just bored at school. And so he really wanted to get out onto the ocean. And so that's what he did, early youth. And then he eventually joined up, I think, with the British Navy. Yeah, he became he, he uh, sailed with the French for several years. That's right. I think it's important probably to note, maybe you were going to get to this, but as a kid, he had a map of Africa that was blank hmm. because... The, all the uncharted deep regions and he was fascinated just like Marlowe describes wanting to go into the white space on the map Conrad had that exact experience of just being enchanted by the adventure and the mystique of these faraway places and all the exploration that was going on at the time I hadn't come across that story well there thank you you're welcome so yeah so he was fascinated by the ocean he was fascinated by exploration and so that's what he chose instead of pursuing a career as an academic or instead of pursuing a career like his father would have wanted for him in politics. In fact, I read somewhere that it was kind of a, a ghost that haunted him for the rest of his life that he didn't do what his father would have wanted him to do. He fled this political activism that his dad was heavily involved in um, for this career at sea. I don't know why I refuse to say the word sailor, but a career at sea. <laughs> Another thing that's very important to understand about Conrad that we haven't mentioned yet. One, his name actually wasn't Conrad. That's a pen name that he adopted later in life. The reason being is because he had a very Polish name that I don't know how to pronounce. Joseph Tudor Konrad Korzyowski or something. I'm sure I'm butchering that. However you pronounce that. He had a very Polish name, but he also spoke Polish. And he learned French as a young child, but he didn't actually learn English until his early 20s. Right. I believe he was 21 when he began to learn English. And so it's a fascinating fact about Conrad is that he was not a native English speaker, and yet he would go on to become one of the premier masters of the craft. Um, a very similar to a person we'll probably never discuss, Nabokov or Nabokov, ever you say his name. Yeah. Um, maybe we will someday. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll do a behind... Pel- we probably do Pellfire. Yeah. I, just, I wouldn't mind doing Lolita, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he wasn't a native speaker, and yet he became one of the premier novelists. And actually, he didn't take up the craft of writing until his 30s. He was 32 when he wrote his first novel, Al- Almayer's Folly, which drew heavily on his experiences at sea. And so he took a lot of his themes, actually most of his themes from his experiences, and he would be criticized for it. Um, a lot of people said that, you know, he could only write about the sea. He could never really write about domestic things. And he admitted as much. But a writer draws from what they know. And they draw from what they know, and then they take what they know, and they shape it into a story that is bigger than that experience or whatever. Mm. And he did it very well. And so most of his famous novels deal with these themes. You have Halmeyer's Folly. You have Heart of Darkness. Um, the Secret Agent is a little bit different, actually. But you also have Nostromo. And these books that he wrote um, deal with these issues and very similar themes of the ocean of but also of alienation of heroism in a new modern age and imperialism which a sailor at the time could not avoid knowing and talking and discussing imperialism to kind of close out his career as an author people tend to see that he had three stages one he had his early i think that it might be saeed who was a famous literary critic saw his career as having three phases you had the early phase and heart of darkness is actually part of this early phase then you have his second phase where he was a famous known writer and then you have his third phase which comes right around because he, he died in the 20s so he saw world war one come and he also saw the onset of early modernism in literature and so his third phase is dominated by that new development of modernism and his age and getting close to death and the um, understanding of the world that that incites in someone, you know, so for what that's worth. 
it's a little bit of uh what do they call it context no when people are at those little oh for, forget it when you have some tidbit that you can share with people at parties <laughs> trivia <laughs> trivia morsel party trick. morsel yeah i don't know <laughs> never mind let's just move on well like i mentioned imperialism we talked about this some with kipling the imperialism of Britain, but it's a different state. Well, I guess it's a similar stage to where Kipling was writing. Because when was the Jungle Book? Right around that. It was right around that time, wasn't it? Maybe a little bit mid mid eighty mid eighteen hundreds. Yeah, I guess we should remember, shouldn't we? But you're beginning to see at this say what the Jungle Book was published in eighteen ninety four. So a very similar period, actually. So after. they're they're looking at a similar era of British colonialism. So we don't have to talk a whole lot about it. It's important to understand that imperialism was happening at the time, that the British Empire was at that point the largest empire to have ever existed in its reach of countries that it had under its control, all the way to India, down to South Africa. I believe that the Boer, I think it's pronounced Boer Wars, were around this time. G.K. Chesterton wrote a lot about these. And in fact, G.K. Chesterton was somewhat of a contemporary to Conrad and Kipling both. And so the question of British imperialism and whether or not the British Empire should have such broad sweeping power and reach into other countries was a question that was at the tip of everyone's tongue at the time. So uh, <laughs> that was fun. It was on everybody's mind. Let's, let's, that's better. I was going to say the tip of everyone's mind, but that's a really funny way to mix your metaphors there. Yeah. And it would have been very much in Conrad's mind. And it would, it's one of the things that people talk a lot about when they read Heart of Darkness. In fact, if people read Heart, when people read Heart of Darkness today in colleges, that's largely the lens that they're looking at it through imperial rule. And, you know, you say the easy things there are to say, well, power corrupts. Yeah. I mean, that's an obvious theme of the novel. Power corrupts. Right. It corrupts everybody. It corrupts the manager. It corrupts Kurtz. And so imperialism was something that would have been on Conrad's mind, the guilt he had over not being politically active like his father was, just having lived under this Russian empire that... Basically killed his dad and mom. Yeah, basically killed his dad and mom, sent them into exile. It would have heavily shadowed his entire past. So imperialism is definitely a dominant theme that you will see in... Heart of Darkness, and I don't think it's something you can really avoid talking about. So right. that is for what it's worth. It has led to some of the bigger criticisms of uh, this book. I know that Chumbawamba, Chinua Achebe, whatever that, yeah, 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 the guy who wrote Things Fall Apart, he really has criticized this book for its representation of Africans, saying that pretty much it just in in trying to depict the evils. What? You call them Chumbawamba. Oh, Chumbawamba, yeah. What you doing? Why did you... <laughs> and yet you make fun of Nate Wilson for calling the character Cotton. <laughs> uh, I just struck my, just struck my funny thing. bone. <laughs> I do apologize. Okay, continue. I was trying to be discreet, but then you called me out. So anyways, to Chumbawamba, he... Um, <laughs> criticizes him for his representations of Africans, saying that in Conrad's attempt to discuss the evils of imperialism, he actually managed to also rehash negative stereotypes. That's basically the argument. And so... We'll get into that more. Yeah, we can get into that. So you have that. You have that angle and a lot of post-colonialism. It's not as big a deal with modern academic studies now, but back in like the early 2000s, it was it was the hot stuff that was happening where you talked about the novels that represented British rule and tried to reread them through a post-colonial lens to either redeem them or condemn them however you want. And so this book has had endless amounts of that sort of study. But also it's in general, and I think this is Harold Bloom, 
who said this. This this particular book by Conrad is the most analyzed book in universities. I don't think there is a, is a book that appears more often on freshman um, reading lists than Heart of Darkness. Question is why? And for Harold Bloom, the que- the answer is because of the ambiguity. Conrad is a master of ambiguity and coming to it any solid understanding of what he thinks of the world is very hard to do. And part of that is because this isn't Conrad necessarily telling the story. It's Marlowe, one of his characters, telling the story. And that always complicates things. We haven't really talked about unreliable narrators too much. Have we dealt with any unreliable we, narrators? Uh, have we dealt That's with any unreliable I don't know narrators, Jake? Uh, I don't think in the booking yet we have even discussed unreliable narrator. I don't know. Yes, not. Well, there's the famous problem of the unreliable narrator, <laughs> and boiled down, um, all what it, it, it's what it sounds like. You have an author who's writing a story, but the story is from the perspective of a character, and so the author takes the opportunity to have fun with whether or not you can trust that narrator. Yeah, and I it, think it, a large part of how do you say that guy's name wasn't Chinua Achebe or Achiba. I, I have no idea how you say it, but I, I think a large part of that's Chinua Achebe, but Achebe. Achebe. I think a large part of Achebe's famous essay accusing Conrad of racism is saying we can't just say that it's Marlowe. It's it's just that like you can't you, we can't just lay the blame at Marlowe and say that Conrad stood above it all and was just depicting a character. Yeah, well, but, wasn't all of Faulkner the problem of? Oh yeah, unreliable. Well, oh yeah, we did talk about that in Faulkner. We did talk about it. So never mind. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> I, mean, is, I wasn't there for that episode. But. I don't know if we ever actually directly said the word unreliable narrator, did we? We probably did. Probably. <laughs> Surely we did. <laughs> Sounds like something we would say. <laughs> well, anyways, so there, there is the problem of the unreliable narrator with Mar- Marlowe being the one who tells this story. And, and the fact that it's not even Marlowe. It's Marlowe telling the story. Marlowe's telling yeah. the story. But it's not. But it's Marlowe telling the story through someone else. Telling the story by that, some guy. Yeah. That, yeah. So it's like twice removed from us. And so there's even some more fun with that. In essence, that's, that's what we're getting is it's similar to some of the yarns you get like in Moby Dick where... We have Ishmael's perspective telling us someone else's perspective. And so it's, what's the main character's name who's telling us the story? Do we ever hear his name? No. You don't know whether it's Conrad or just some dude on a boat that... It's somebody waiting for, it's basically somebody waiting for his ship to sail, who then listens to Marlowe tell this story about this time that he had to go into the jungle and find this guy named Kurtz to bring him back because he was causing issues for the ivory trade. And that's the story. That really is it. And your main characters are Marlowe, the captain, the guy telling the story who went to find Kurtz. You have Kurtz, and then you have some other ancillary characters like the manager, the accountant, and then the crazy Russian guy near the end who's a big fan of Marlowe. Played by Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now. Played by Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now. So I guess since you mentioned Apocalypse Now, we can also say before we get into its relationship to literary history that this is also one of the most adapted stories. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned to me earlier, because I had forgotten, The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot. We also have Apocalypse Now, and I'm sure there are others. Yeah, I think this is one of those stories that has big, splashy sort of, it's like, how many movies have I seen where they, I just saw a movie where they quote Ozymandias, you know, it's just like, it's one of those kind of high school reading list things that uh, Hollywood filmmakers are like, dumb people will think this is smart if we include references to this. Yeah, It's it's like having a character read Nietzsche. Right, yeah, exactly. Nietzsche is the perfect example. I'm reading Nietzsche, therefore I'm deep in trouble. That's yeah. just like that's movie for deep troubled intellectual. I don't. Has there ever been a Heart of Darkness movie? I think there has. Probably some dumb like thing that no one cares about. But I believe yes. The answer is yes. I mean, I guess the ultimate answer is yeah. It's Apocalypse Now. But 
Well, that's an answer that we'll be talking about when we get around to discussing Apocalypse Now, which we will sometime soon, listener. Okay. But not today. Not today. Today we have to finish our context for old Conrad. Old Conrad. So the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about was where he fits in with literary history, mm-hmm. because he's, he's at an interesting place. He's not this pop figure of British colonialism like Kipling. He's not the enthusiastic, jovial defender of Christendom like Chesterton. He's, I don't want to say this without making all the Chesterton, because I think Chesterton's a great writer, but his novels aren't that great. Right. Conrad, and like we saw with Kipling, he's he was fun and all that, but he's definitely not the greatest storyteller to have ever lived. Right. Conrad fits into the, I mean, he actually was a very good writer. And so he fits into this pantheon of the great novels that were written right at the end of the century. And so what makes him such a great writer? Well, for one, his style, even though English wasn't his native tongue, his style is just amazing. And his ability to depict imagery is just, man, he knows how to do it. So that's what makes him a great writer. Every sentence kind of just sparkles off the page, to use a bad term, <laughs> to describe something that's really good. <laughs> um, and But also then are the themes that he evoked. So he had themes that were very much in line with the Victorianism of the imperialism, sort of the high adventure of the sea. And so you saw these sorts of things with Fenimore Cooper. You saw these sorts of things with Melville and with even with Dickens, characters that you were memorable characters. So he fits into kind of the Victorianism, but he also... Not even the tradition of like Robert Louis Stevenson. Exactly. Those yeah. kinds of boys' adventure stories. Yeah, he fits in with all that, but there's something like there's something brooding about him that is sounding the way for modernism. Because with modernism, when we've talked about this, but modernism really highlights isolation, alienation, right. despair in the face of this world that we can't comprehend anymore. We talked about how World War One was really important in that, but also just as the empire became so big and the world that the empire thought that it could conquer and control became less controllable. You had the Boer Wars, which showed that the empire couldn't completely hold on to like South Africa. You had violence in these places where you went into deep India or into deep Africa where the empire couldn't keep you safe. And so it's coming to face with these deep existential realities of nature and of the world. If you want to hear us talk about modernism, then just listen to any bookening episode ever, basically. Yeah. Yeah, but he fits right in there and he kind of, he foreshadows the themes that would come out in modernism, which then it makes perfect sense why Eliot would go to Heart of Darkness as inspiration for one of his poems. Whether or not that's a complete fair characterization of Conrad, I guess we'll talk about. But that does then, to bring it full circle, get back to why he is, I think, so studied in universities is because there's just a whole lot to say about his books and there's a whole lot of depth there. You can, if you are a philosopher and you want to talk about the deep existential issues that are here go ahead. You can do it. It may not be the most fun thing to say about it, but you could sure you could do it. There's also just great craft here. There's good storytelling here. There's the whole triple layer of the narratives that's happening. And this just, it's a great, richly textured book. So there you have it. There you have it. He was, I think what you can say about Conrad in the end is that he was a, well, for one, in the opening to one of, forget which book it is. He has a famous introduction to one of his books where basically his point is that he if he's moved you by the end it, but in the end if he's really just made you see the world then he's done his job and that's because he is not only a modernist in his practice but he's also inheriting the tradition of realism and we talked a lot about realism with tolstoy and in this sense he's very much like a, he's very tolstoyan Tolst- tolstoyish Tolstoyish. Tolstoyish in Tolstoyish. his writing, in the sense that, and I'll talk more about this when we get to our baggage, but 
he just has an uncanny ability to make you see what he's writing about. He just feels very real. And you don't get it as much with this because it's third. It's this narrative. But like in books like Nostromo, man, it's it's amazing. Just the way that you you get this feel like you're on this island with these British colonialists and these French expatriates. It's amazing. We've talked a lot about realism and how it works. Sometimes it's really hard to put your finger on it. But when it works, it really does work. That's all I've got to say. And he's mm-hmm. working in that tradition, but then also pushing towards modernism without really seeing himself as doing that. I guess the one last interesting side note is he himself didn't see Heart of Darkness as anything special. It was published, I believe. At first it was published in a magazine, but then it got published in book form with two other stories. Yeah. And, and I think yeah, both actually, the critics and him were more excited about the other two, if I understand that's right. It right. Yeah. The other one, they all deal with Marlowe. I think, at least the one about youth. Mm-hmm. I know Marlowe Marla. in more than one book. And so, yeah, he didn't think of this as anything special. And in fact, it wasn't until the guys we talked about with our Faulkner episode, the new critics, got a hold of it, that it became really popular because it, it just really invites close reading where you know, there's a lot to talk about if you really read closely the novel. So Yeah, I wasn't really it, able to source this, but somebody I was reading said that Elliot Hollow Man was responsible for a decent amount of reevaluation of, oh, there must be something cool here because this awesome poet decided to cannibalize it for his awesome poem. Wouldn't surprise me the new critics were big fans of Elliot. But I know in the 1960s, it really became a big thing. Kind of had like a Beowulf trajectory. Right. Kind of not seen as a literary classic until well after... It's it had come into the being. I definitely felt just in reading it like this guy must just exist at the perfect nexus of modernism and Victorianism. He definitely see how he's in the lineage of all the Victorians, but also in the lineage of Hemingway and all these Faulkner, everybody that we've read. Marlowe is a very sort of wised up modern kind of a hero, which I suppose we'll talk about all that more as we go on. Another important historical note to add is that Conrad, like I said, he was very excited by the idea of the unexplored, uncharted, the white space on the map, as he called it, as Marlowe, I think, calls it in the book. He was excited about that. And he really wanted to go to Africa. And he, in fact, did. He actually approached the managing director of a Belgian shipping firm specifically to get a job as a captain on a Congolese steamer because he was so excited about the idea of going into the heart of Africa. And he got that job after lobbying for it for a while, was very excited about it, went down the river, saw some really nasty stuff, wrote letters to people about dead bodies on the paths, just like what Marlowe experiences. The one part where he says, if Marlowe kind of has this ironic side comment about like, if a, but he says, if a dead black guy with a bullet in his head is an improvement on the landscape, then I guess the landscape was improved. Conrad himself saw a lot of things, got very sick, ran into all these kinds of bureaucratic things, like his steamer was sunk. There's just a lot of parallels. Obviously, he was drawing on this experience and then came out of that experience, like I said, very sick, very depressed, a changed man, totally disillusioned by this thing that as a kid he had been excited about his, you know, I'm going to have a boy's adventure exploring Africa and I'm going to lobby the the Belgian shipping firm to let me do it because it's been my dream and now I can be a captain of it. And then he just went into that and did not have a good time of it. So it's not, you know, there was no Kurtz. There was no, there's, there's a lot of authorial shaping. It's, you know, it's easy to just say, oh, he he wrote something based completely on his own experience. That's not true, but a very specific experience in his life did inform this particular novel. Also, we're going to be talking to Lucas Weeks, our friend who grew up in, what's the Congo called now? Zaire. The Congo. The, the Congo. It was called the Congo by the time. Yeah. Okay. Um, grew up in the Congo, formerly 
known as the Ivory Coast and the Ivory Coast, who will have a little bit more to say about, um, or I'm sure a lot more to say about what was going on in Africa that time. But if you read the stories about specifically what happened to the Congo at the time and how the Belgians (laughs) exploited it, it's pretty insane. When Marlowe says that he goes, he goes, he doesn't actually call it Belgium, but he says he goes to a white sepulcher of a city, uh, referencing the Pharisees and all that kind of stuff, I think probably. That's really true. That begins to get at how evil and hypocritical and capricious and mean-spirited the treatment of, I don't know, I'm not articulating it very well. I'm no, I'm no contextual Texan. I'm just a humble uh, obedient host. I'm just a humble obedient host. That's true. I think maybe it helps to know a little bit about what was actually going on in the Congo at that time. It was called the Free State of the Congo. That's roughly translated from the Belgian. Leopold II of Belgia actually owned it. It was not Belgium's property. It was the king's personal property. And Leopold II is just like the the poster boy for the, like the rotting, bored, aristocratic, like bad king in the days when democracy had largely kind of taken over, but the kings were still left just uh, kind of in- impotent and having a lot of money. Uh, there's a story that uh, Leopold II famously grumbled to the German emperor after watching a parade. There's nothing left for us kings but money. And that was kind of who Leopold II was. He's like, he's a real jerk. Like there's stories, there's all kinds of stories about him, his 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 interest in uh, young teenage girls and stuff like that. He wasn't a very nice guy, but he basically made all his money out of exploiting that country. He hosted this big conference in Brussels with his plan to open up to civilization, the only part of our globe where Christianity has not yet penetrated, and to pierce the darkness which envelops the entire population. So that was how he cast it to the Belgian people, to the German state, to the whole world at the time. And it actually brought in a lot of missionaries. It brought in a lot of explorers. It drew a lot of interest. He used all that kind of, we're going to Christianize and civilize this unexplored dark region. He used all that propaganda to sort of lobby for the Congo to be his and people like Marlowe's aunt she's she's the kind of character who you know obviously really brought bought into that it was given to Leopold II as his own personal property at the Berlin conference at 1884 he called himself the proprietor and uh, the German state which was which Belgium was a part of at the time stipulated free trade for all the peoples no taxes or tariffs it was supposed to be this place where all the different countries America England they could all explore they could all do the work of civilizing together. Leopold actually had Stanley, the famous explorer, Henry Stanley, the Livingston, I presume, guy, uh, go in there and go down the river and make all these treaties with all these different tribes, establish trading posts, stuff like that, get all these tribal chiefs to sign treaties. But it was really all a big crock of crap. (laughs) (laughs) because the chiefs didn't understand what they were signing in these treaties, and they were just completely exploited in all the ways that that Conrad saw and that he describes in this book. Leopold II ended up making a huge personal profit from the ivory trade and then from rubber. Around this time, I think bike tires were invented, and so people suddenly, rubber took off, and uh, rubber takes forever to grow, but it turns out that the Congo has all kinds of rubber, like wild rubber, so they would send in... Basically, uh, Leopold II had this army of mercenaries. He would send them in. They would go into a village. They would hold all the women captive, and then they would make the men go out and harvest rubber. And the 
death toll for what the, what ended up what this ended up causing. People have estimated it at 15 million. People have said that the, the, obviously records weren't kept, and Leopold II had reasons for not wanting very good records to be kept. So you had this weird thing where you had all these very condescending people like Marlowe's aunt who are out in the civilized world saying, we're going in, we're Christianizing it, we're civilizing it, this is great. And then missionaries would go there and they would just be horrified. People would, like like uh, Marlowe or like Conrad himself, would go in and they'd see these atrocities happening. They're the most famous uh, atrocity was that that the, these, this army of mercenaries would have Congolese soldiers that they would have come in to help them. And they didn't want these guys to rebel. They wanted them to obey. So they had to bring a head per bullet because they didn't want them to either waste bullets or save bullets for rebellion. So they had to bring back a head per every bullet that they spent. So if you fired a bullet and you were a Congolese soldier, you then had to go and retrieve the head. So there's stories of them bringing baskets of heads back. There's stories of guys who had accidentally wasted some bullets going out to find some heads to match those bullets um, from people people who maybe did not meet their end at the bullets. So King Leopold the Jerk, <laughs> King Leopold the Jerk, King Leopold the Jerk was the second. King Leopold II was a jerk. He actually inspired the Congo reform movement, which is considered like the first big human rights movement in the world. He became very unpopular at the end of his reign when stuff started to come out. Mark Twain wrote a book. It's called King Leopold's Soliloquy, and it just contains like quotes from King Leopold that Mark Twain has twisted and kind of made sarcastic, like what people do with, you know, our, our great uh, American president at this time. The, the beginning of the book says all the money, you know, all the money for Mr. Clemens' work will go to the Congolese reform movement or whatever. People were calling for King Leopold to be hung. I actually got a quote here from Twain's soliloquy that he wrote, putting words into King Le- Leopold's mouth. So the whole thing is sarcastically from King Leopold's point of view. The quote is, Yes, all things went harmoniously and pleasantly in those good days, and I was looked upon as the benefactor of a downtrodden and friendless people. Then all of a sudden came the crash. That is to say, the incorruptible Kodak. So he's talking about, like, cameras. And all went to hell. The only witness I have encountered in my long experience that I couldn't bribe. 10,000 pulpits and 10,000 presses are saying the good word for me all the time and placidly and convincingly denying the mutilations. Then that trivial little Kodak that a child can carry in his pocket gets up, uttering never a word and knocks them all dumb. So by the end of Leopold's life in the early 20th century, there's pictures coming back. You can find these pictures online if you're a jerk that likes to find such things. I accidentally stumbled across a couple in my research. You can find pictures of people with their hands hacked off. Uh, people with various body mutilations. It was really disgusting what the what imperialism actually did. I mean, as much as we're may in, may in the episode that comes after this, as much as we may knock the modern critics and they're turning everything into imperialism was bad and blah, blah, blah. It was pretty nasty the way that European society exploited Congo. And uh, King Leopold ended up being told that he couldn't have the Congo anymore. And so he sold it for some exorbitant price the year before he died of natural causes, not of being hung. So yeah, that's a little, that's a little extra context. I'm sure we'll get into more of that sort of thing and what it's led to in the 20th century when we speak to our pal Lucas in an upcoming episode. Anyway, an airplane baggage check. Uh, baggage check is the section of the 
program where we talk about our baggage. Jake, what baggage did you bring to Heart of Darkness? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, I knew it was about Africa. I did try to read it a couple of years ago. I picked up a Norton anthology of short fiction or something like that and was just sort of working through it. I was looking for short stories and not novella. And so I hit it and I started it and then I realized how long it was and gave up. I was just looking for shorter stuff. Then it wasn't like I was turned off by it. It was just like, oh, I can't read this in a, a night or in a sitting. I don't want this right now. You hadn't really encountered Conrad in any by reputation or Apocalypse Now. I don't think either. No, I've not guys seen, have it. seen Apocalypse Now. Um, nope. I've read Chinua Chebe. Things fall apart. <laughs> Things fall apart. Things. That was a long time ago. Brandon, your contacts, sir. My contacts. My my contacts. <laughs> contacts. My contacts. I don't wear contacts. Okay. Baggage. Did you just have 2020? Yeah. Baggage, my baggage. Yeah. Thank you. Your baggage. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. sorry. My context. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in 1985. <laughs> now, your, your baggage. My baggage. Well, I read Heart of Darkness. I don't remember when I first read Heart of Darkness, but my real introduction to Conrad was through Nostromo, which is a... I, I briefly talked about what it was. It's about British colonialism in an island setting. It's... It, I just... I fell in love with it. It was... I didn't bring it up in our... I might have briefly mentioned it. I don't know if I did or not. But um, around the age of 15, 16, it was one of my favorite books. And I read it multiple times. Um, was just struck by the beauty of his, the pro, well, not the beauty, but the simplicity and the power of his prose, just how he could bring up an image with his words. And so, yeah, I didn't remember liking Heart of Darkness as much as I liked it now. I'll say that. I didn't read Heart of Darkness more than once, and I don't think it was as good as Nostromo, so I didn't read it any more than that. And that was my experience with Conrad. He's, strangely enough, he's not really talked about or discussed a whole lot in the graduate circles. Not many people study Conrad now. Huh. I wonder why not. I don't know. It's just, just kind of out of style, out of fashion. It's a freshman kind of thing. Yeah, he's more of a freshman thing. You get introduced to him, but then he's not one that sticks around usually. Yeah, I think also I'm basing this opinion on my copy of of Conrad, which is which has a bunch of essays by modern academics and stuff. The the new historicism and deconstructionism and feminism. None of those things have been particularly kind to Conrad. I have a volume of Conrad that, that where the book goes for 90 pages, and then we have about 200 pages of people saying how much the book sucks basically (laughs) because it's mean to women and mean to native peoples and mean to all kinds of things and yeah so not a whole lot of not a whole lot to say uh i came to conrad uh, because i loved the movie apocalypse now which is famously based on heart of darkness the the documentary about making apocalypse now and how terrible it was to make apocalypse now is called heart of darkness a filmmaker's journey and it's a very famous documentary in its own right and apocalypse now is a movie i saw when it's probably 14 15 16 something like that and really loved the movie because it was deep and dark and beautiful and primordial and violent and everything that a 14 15 16 year old poser looks for in a movie i I still do like the movie and we'll talk about that one of those times one of these episodes but i read heart of darkness just to see what the book was that it inspired this movie that i loved so much to see if the book, you know, because the movie, of course, is set in Vietnam. It's not a direct adaptation. It's more of a inspired by kind of a dealie. Although we could argue that and maybe one day we will. Um, in fact, I know we will in an episode coming soon to a, a bookening near you. A bookening near you. But so I read the book at that age. I think I was a little young for it because I didn't really enjoy it. I thought it was kind of boring and stupid. I was very disappointed by Kurtz when he showed up. Spoiler alert, Kurtz is a very imposing, brooding Marlon Brand figure as played by Marlon Brando in um, 
uh, what's that movie called? Apocalypse Now. In the book, he's a, spoiler alert again, sickly old guy that is maybe more interesting for the things that he inspires in others than for what he actually turns out to be. I suppose we'll talk more about that, but I I just remember as a teenager being very disappointed by how the book ended and by what I perceive to be the difficulty of the language and the denseness and just the big, long, page-long paragraphs are kind of always a turnoff for me because I'm a lame like that. Like, I almost wish some person would just go through and re-paragraph some of these old books. Like, it would be nice <laughs> if they would just, like, just, I mean, same book, same everything, just re-paragraph it so that I don't have to look at a block of page that includes dialogue and everything all lumped into one. It's kind of like how Cormac McCarthy should just use quotation marks probably yeah, he should i mean well, you could argue that the lack adds something and maybe one day we'll argue that maybe next year if we do cormac mccarthy like i'd like to but yeah i read it and i was disappointed and i was really not looking forward to reading it again this year i was basically i i, I think i suggest i was the one that suggested we should do it because i thought it would be nice to kind of check it off of our booking list of authors and get it out of the way i also thought it would be an excuse to watch apocalypse now with you guys which i anticipate will be fun but i ended up really enjoying it this time actually yep. and um really thinking it was it was good so uh i guess we can end the episode i've already said what i thought yeah um, and so has brandon but we I have to do, what's that? just to add not I can't stress enough how much Nostromo moment to me. So Conrad was a big author for me. I just that was like the only book I read. It was weird. I would like read one book and wouldn't want to read the others. So it was David Copperfield, War and Peace, and Nostromo. No, those are the big three in those Brandon's were the life. Big three when I was a teenager. When you were so, a teenager, and I think that any young writer out there who wants to learn how to do the craft could do worse than picking up Conrad. So yeah. I think he's fantastic. But uh, I suppose we should talk about that. So uh, let's talk about Heart of Darkness. What do you guys say? Let's do it. All right. What did you guys think about Marlowe as a character? Was he just like a, a, a an avatar for the reader to experience the world like a Dr. Watson kind of a guy? Or was his point of view and the way that he told the story important to the story? Discuss. Well, seeing as he's like into Buddha at the end of the story, I believe that we're probably supposed to think something about him. <laughs> so <laughs> he's a Zen Buddha. Like I like him. You like I him? like Marlo. What do you like about Marlo? Oh, the reason he's able to narrate the story is because he has the one thing that nobody else in the heart of darkness does, which is restraint, right? Isn't that really the thing? Restraint. What do you mean by restraint? Well, he uses the word restraint over and over again when he talks about Kurtz and the Russian in particular. But also it's just connected with the whole idea of civilization versus savagery. And what separates the two is these restraints. And so where is our humanity is kind of that existentialist <laughs> question that you... Yeah. <laughs> what separates me, the, uh, the civilized Belgian... The civilized Belgian. I think Marlowe is probably supposed to be English. I know he appears in other novels, so Brandon can probably tell us. I think he's English because he's sitting with four other Englishmen on the. How do you say the name of that river? Time, Tame? Thames, Thames, Thames. He's got the last name Marlowe. Yeah. So is the sepulchral city London? No, the sepulchral city is Belgium. What he says he before he goes Belgium's to see a those country. two women and the the people. Yeah. So what? I mean, so either he's in 
Belgium with like his aunt or whatever. Right. That's true. Yeah. So maybe he is Belgian. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I think he's just a man of the world is what he is. He's just a. He's he's some. He's some Euro sailor. He's a sailor. He's a. He belongs to the ocean. His country is the sea. Exactly. So (laughs) I think that's actually true. (laughs) As much as you smiled sardonically at yourself (laughs) while saying it. Well, okay. So he's civilized Mm -hmm. he's from he's from western civilization what separates him from from the african is as he can the best he can tell is restraint right right and what happens to kurtz is his restraints are loosed so he has the benefits of his culture and civilization yeah loosed from all restraint why then does he is he so intrigued by kurtz and feels like he has to protect the man's legacy or be the keeper of it do you think i'm not sure I th- maybe we can talk ourselves into a good answer. If you have a good answer, I'd like to know it. I don't it, actually it have felt, a good answer. I'd... It felt like he was just sort of sort of stumbled into it simply by his repulsion at the the manager and everybody else. Like the only answer I can think of off the top of my head, doesn't he say somewhere it was ni- he, there's almost a quote like something like it was good to have a choice of nightmares. Like these idiots are so dumb. Like that. I yeah. As well, you know, he chose Kurtz because. I think one, because he didn't have to live with Kurtz and Kurtz was out there and could be, uh, for most of the time, could be somebody that was just other than the guys right in front of me. And the one thing we know about Kurtz definitively is that he's different. Everybody he's thinks otherly, he's otherly and yeah. he's special and he's remarkable in one way or another. But he manages to still keep himself from Kurtz, separate, distinct from Kurtz and doesn't latch on to him. Like the, the Russian comes to him as a for, as sort of a warning. This is what you could be. Yeah. This is what you, if you let Kurtz have power over you, this is what happens to you. And he was di- disgusted and repulsed by that. So he kept himself, but still decided, here I am in the middle of <laughs> of hell. Right. Well, <laughs> this is the devil. Kurtz, that gonna... Then what he would have done in the pivotal climactic scene is helped Kurtz up and helped him go, go to that campfire and just join the final satanic giving over of self to the the heart of darkness but instead he sees has a choice to either throttle kurtz or just do what he does which is talk him back onto the boat mm-hmm. so somehow he doesn't give in to kurtz and yet he does and i'm not quite sure how to i just i don't think he does he i think just, he you don't know how to make sense of the ambiguity <laughs> the ambiguity is driving me crazy <laughs> brandon you got a wise answer you're about to let forth with I think that you guys are on to it. I mean, the way to understand Kurtz and Marlowe's relation to Kurtz, I think, is through his repulsion at the manager. Mm-hmm. Because he overhears that one conversation where it's obvious that the manager is just this petty, bureaucratic person who's out to lie and to... It reminded me a lot of um, Alien <laughs> and the relation of the soldiers are whatever the workers on the ship to, to the Wayland Company. To the Wayland Company, yes. yeah. I mean, it's 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 a lot like that. And then you have... The corporate overseer who always just turns out to be the petty bureaucrat. Right. Who... But a trope, I suppose, the the Yeah, but this manager, yeah, it's enough of a trope that it, we all know people like this, and oh, we've sure. seen it. Yeah. This business-driven capitalist that just, they say what they need to get what they want, and then behind your back, they'll stab you, or they'll want to hang you, or it's all for profit or it's all for well um, if you put yourself in the position of being marlo you have these people in front of you who are fat and lazy and are just sitting there and are angling you know for some kind of like you have the guy that comes position. out in fine clothes with like an umbrella under his arm right. he's got a parasol over on yeah. the side of the hill yeah. or whatever yeah and and they're just sort of like leveraging themselves and they're all jealous of this guy who just is some dude 
who went into deepest, darkest Africa by himself and comes back hauling loads of ivory. Like, and none of them have the nerve right. <laughs> or the ability to do anything like that or the will to do anything like that. But they sure want, you know, the kind of prestige or whatever comes with it. And so, you know, you also sense that Marlowe's like, well, here's an adventure. Well, and he actually does. What did he, 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 what's that quote where he says the, um, you know, if ever there was somebody who was given over to the unbridled spirit of adventure right. or something like that, it was just Kurtz. Kurt, that's appealing and mysterious and neat and so marlo it's i don't know what age he's supposed to be here doing is he's a young man i'm assuming right yeah i mean the way he t- the way he tells the story it seems like a something that a formative thing that happened a long time yeah, this ago seems to be he's where over he's, 25 right yeah. because isn't he older than the russian and isn't that how old the russian is because the russian's like i'm younger than you think i'm only 25 yeah yeah i think you're right yeah, yeah. I mean, Marlo kind of reminds me of a character like Levin, mm-hmm. who is just, he has so much discernment and wisdom and understanding of himself that he just can't be a part of either of the options. He sees the darkness, but he also sees that the other two ways to pretend the darkness isn't there is to either have the propaganda that we're going to go out and spread the good news of the like what is empire. Yeah. And we're going to go and we're going to bring wisdom and understanding to these people. And that's definitely a theme that you see. Like you have characters like that in Dickens novels that Dickens just hates and he makes fun mm-hmm. of them for the jelly bee and bleak house is like that. And so you have that option, but then you also have the option of the just hard nosed capitalist who wants to go out and make a profit from the ivory. And like you said, the guy with the umbrella coming out and pretending that the people aren't dying in the corner over there so that you can still have your good things. He can't, he can't be a part of either of those things. So I just think that's inherent to his character. Right. I think he's, I like him too. I like him a lot. I think he's in a way that seems very modern to me in a way that I think there's a whole lineage of American heroes that we could, you know, down to Tony Stark or somebody like that. I think he's compromised. He's part of this world and he's going to do his job. He can't stop the pilgrims from just stupidly firing their pistols at the natives, but he can blow the whistle and get the natives to, he's not going to save the day or change what's wrong with the world but he's going to do the best he can and he's going to work hard and he's going to he's not going to he's not pull going. over and bury the helmsman or the steersman but he's not going to let him be given up to the cannibals right. either yeah it's not this isn't avatar where he's going to go and save all the blue people right <laughs> but he'll give it's, his biscuit I mean, to the dying guys like he's going to do yeah. what he can in this existential way but he's also kind of detached from it again in a way that i see is a very modern i just think the whole lineage of american heroes the guys that humphrey bogart played the guys that clark gable played the guys that john wayne played tony stark now in the marvel movies i just see him as part of that pop lineage like he's he's the wised up guy that's gonna do the best he can but it's kind of an outsider you know kind of gonna stand outside of it have a certain ironic sense of humor about it yeah well it's he's the hero of the story without ever with i guess i'll go back to avatar i don't because it seems there's a parallel there in the sense that you have them going into this world that's being attacked by the corporation there's evil that's happening that people are trying to pretend is not happening but then you have two different stories one 
resolves it completely with this sweeping narrative and it's all happy, right? And you have everything saved and the corporation's out and everything ends and yay. The other one, that's not that's not what happens at all. The hero doesn't save the day in the end, but the question is, which is more valuable? Right. Well, I see a lot of parallels. It's interesting that he was writing at the same time as Mark Twain because this novel feels like the dark version of Huck Finn in some ways. I, I thought that. Yeah. The whole way through. I thought of two novels, actually, that we've read. I thought of Huck Finn a lot. And then towards the end, when we were meeting Kurtz, I actually found myself thinking a lot of that hideous strength. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. The modern man, you know. Going to use all the tools of modernity to but then just go crazy because you can't actually make modernity and the your own inner darkness work together yeah well yeah that's a really fascinating part where marlo says that the person who can go in to this world and not be tempted by the devil is either the fool or the person who's just so saintly that they're either so foolish or stupid that the devil can't tempt them right or, or doesn't bother yeah doesn't bother that's right or dumb people like apparently all women yeah. are. Or they're so saintly that right. they're never part of this world anyways. But everyone else will and go he, into this world and be tempted. Right. And, he, did, and he couldn't tell when he was standing in Kurtz's presence if his feet were on the ground or if they were in the air yeah. anymore. Right. Kurtz had kicked the world to pieces. Man, Mar- uh, Conrad was a good writer. <laughs> he was really good. Yeah. <laughs> it's really amazing stuff. <laughs> we should we, we should read Nostromo next year. I'm excited. Yeah. If you like it that much. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time since I've read Nostromo. Well, you'll be able to re-experience a cla- oh, something you liked as a kid, maybe. We're going to end up filling up our whole list just with, we should read that conversations that we have on Mike. Well, we should save a couple spots for the future $100 supporters. Yes, we should. <laughs> That's right. They're coming. Probably. We know you're out there. Yeah, we'll probably save 12 spots, really. We shouldn't fill anything up. So I want to know more of why you kept thinking of Twain. Well, you have this, I think, Marlowe's basic goodness and yet impotence reminded me a lot of Huck. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's a river journey, so there was that parallel. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> He's going down the river and he's seeing these horrors and he's being carried into the heart of darkness, which I think we almost said that sentence when we talked about Twain. We said, you know, the deeper Huck gets into the South, the more he's seeing the the basic darkness at the heart of man. And Marlowe's having the same thing. Um, Twain doesn't end up having an ending to his story. <laughs> that Tom Sawyer just waltzes in and <laughs> right. sort of whitewashes all the fences. <laughs> right. Only Tom Sawyer. Hey, uh, there's nothing going on over here. <laughs> <laughs> this is all a morality play. Right. <laughs> and you have, I think you have that same sort of good-hearted person that's just like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this besides blow the train whistle or blow the steamer whistle where I can and save a couple of people, offer a biscuit where I can. You know, it's kind of Very worldly-wise kind of. It's that classic existential dilemma kind of you know i'm gonna the life sucks but i'm gonna make what little glorious sacrifices i can you know that huck has which is to me very moving actually so it's what sort of struck me is like the parallels of the story the down river the things get darker but before even that just the the setting of the setting sun on the river and we're kicking back under the stars and this guy over here named Marlo's going to tell a story. I love that. I am such a sucker for that. It's so romantic to me. And I think it's romantic to me because Huck mm-hmm. was so romantic. It's like Twain created this romanticism for that kind of, I love being on a boat. Mm-hmm. at night i love it and i'm not like i grew up i did grow up on a river but we never had a boat and we also had a pond but we, i never had a boat 
you know, it wasn't like a river rat or anything like that, but um, I'm, I wouldn't hardly know. I've been sailing exactly twice in a little small little boat. So not a lot of experience, but man, it's super romantic to me to yeah. be at night on a dock or on a boat under the stars. That's because Twain made you go there. <laughs> he painted it for you. He painted it for me, yeah. Yep. I think that's, so. And I think that hearing this story in the context of that in just a few places where our <laughs> narrator... Like when, when Marlo, Marlo pulls back yeah. and just... He lights his pipe in the dark. Like you right. can just yes. totally see that. It's quiet and you're wondering. He's wonder, He's listening and he doesn't know is anybody awake or not. And you have those moments of... And you wonder if Marlo knows if anybody's actually listening <laughs> to him or cares. cares. <laughs> <laughs> As, to throw back to the... I guess, would it be the last episode now where we were talking about details with authors? A couple episodes with Andy Wilson. Ago, yeah. Man, he's just... This is what... All this the is what right I was details. To, this is what we were trying. I was trying to get at was like you feel like you've been on that Mississippi with I kept having had that conversation it was just popping I mean like Conrad's a perfect contrast to if you're gonna have that he just knows he just knows the right details at every turn to put in that just make things pop for you and that's why I'm excited to read Nostromo Nostromo because you you just sat there and you're like Conrad paints these pictures I'm like yeah 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 and then you're like and he doesn't really do it that well in Heart of Darkness because Nostromo's like (laughs) I'm like what okay yeah (laughs) when are we gonna read that one man it's just (laughs) he's such a good writer that he can take different tones too and so Marlo is not Conrad. Marlo's a character that he's created. Mm-hmm. But Marlo's still a fantastic storyteller, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just he's just that good. Yeah. For a guy that didn't learn English until he was <laughs> 21. Yeah. You said uh in your context that Shakespeare was a huge influence on his life. When would that have been then if he didn't learn English? It he wouldn't have, have read him in Would he have read him in translation? That's interesting. Yeah. In Polish? So in Polish? I guess, yeah. yeah. The Polish translation of Shakespeare. He also spoke French for and was a French sailor for the first years of his life before things, something didn't work out. Like he got in trouble and had to be an English sailor. So he lived yeah. an interesting life. But you would think, surely he read, ended up reading a lot of Shakespeare in English. Oh, he would have. Yeah, I think he would have. He became a fully assimilated English. It's worth noting he married, became a writer, became Joseph Conrad, the English novelist. It's amazing to think that that's where he got to from where he started. Yeah, but. I had I had no idea that he wasn't an English novelist as I read this until you told me a few days ago. Oh, I was in the middle of it at that context. point. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's stunning. Yeah, I love that scene. I love that it starts on the Thames with that evoking that nighttime feel of just being on a boat with some friends. Uh, and then I, I love that he kind of kicks it to pieces that the the unnamed narrator is thinking about the glorious, you know, the Romans came and brought civilization and isn't it wonderful and this river that gives so much life and vitality. And then by the end, it's the last sentences and seem to lead into an immense heart of darkness. <laughs> bomb, bomb, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> you know i started this is just gonna i'm gonna expose my stupidity here but i i started reading this before we read boys of blur and then we stuck boys of blur in the middle and then i picked it up and it just now like i just now connected the, <laughs> the beginning and the end like, <laughs> i've finished it well in my defense i've just finished it this morning yeah but, well, it's fine i mean i think but, this is one of those books with lots of like big it's the reason it's probably a freshman book it's got yeah, all this kind yeah, of big, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the metaphor yeah but it just like it had left my mind the whole beginning of him wondering about the celts and the right. the romans coming up the river yeah. thames and but the narrator is just like the <laughs> glories of the <laughs> marlo's like let me tell you a story <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
Company today was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Brandon Menzel and Jake. It was performed by Brandon Chastine and Jake Menzel. And it was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. As I already said, you can go to warhornmedia.com for lots more great content. You can also go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under the handle at warhornmedia. You can find the booking on Twitter under at the Twitter, or at the... <laughs> Under at the bookening, and you can, uh, um, yeah, I gave up, folks. I can't get through this one. Support us at patreon.com forward slash the bookening. The end. <laughs> <laughs>